Hello and welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. The home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloween. My name is Mr. Craig Earth, and I am one of the hosts of Splatter Chatter. Yes, he is. My name is Miss Melmoy, and I am the other host of Splatter Chatter. She sure is. And tonight, we are coming to you with episode 118. And in honor of the um, the month of love, we're going to look at a marriage gone very awry, very quickly, with 2019's, um, it's not a cult classic, but it's definitely a passionate favorite. Yeah. Um, Ready or Not, uh, directed by Radio Silence team, Matt Bettinelli-Open and Tyler Gillette. And starring uh, the great Samara Weaving and Adam Brody. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, <clears throat> this was a Miss Mel idea, an excellent idea. I was like, oh my God, why have I never thought to like put this on the list of ideas? I was like, I was like, what haven't we, like, it was like, okay, Valentine's Day, romance, like, what have we, haven't we done? And for whatever reason, it just popped into my head. It's Maybe it's because Samara Weaving is always one or two thoughts out of my head at any given time. So, <laughs> um, it's sort of like a, a six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but with you, it's Samara. It's how I tie things back to Samara Weaving. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. A great choice. Uh, such a fun movie. Um, mm. and I think we'll we'll provide a lot of fun for us to discuss tonight but first let's do a little bit of a um horror headline slash read watch listen check in um anything you've been up to that you want to mention since our last episode i haven't been doing a ton um i have been doing a pseudo rewatch and i say pseudo rewatch because charlotte is watching it and so i'm popping in for occasional episodes but of dark Oh, oh, on Netflix. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, the sci-fi horror. Yeah. Very tense. Um, would I describe to people as like Stranger Things if Stranger Things like was prestige television? Yeah. Instead of what it is. and intellectual. And... Yeah. Yeah. You have to draw charts and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I've been sort of rewatching that, which has been kind of fun because I was like, wow, remember Dark? Um, but other than that, I haven't been doing too much. I have been getting very into um, a this is a YouTube guy who I normally watch for like horror game playthroughs. Uh-huh. Um, John Wolf, who has recently semi recently in the past year started doing um, videos where he debunks a lot of like really crappy ghost hunting shows. Um, and it's very fun Sounds right up your alley like he'll something will happen and he'll be like pause and then he'll like recreate it at home and like show how like one would um do that so that's been fun but other than that i haven't i haven't really done too much in the way of the horrors the horror um yeah i I'm in a similar boat. Not a whole lot. I don't think anything actually on the watch side of things. I cannot remember when we recorded our top 10 episode. 
if I was reading it, if I'd started it or not, but I did read and finish Misery. Oh, um, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, that one, that like hit me closer than a lot of other Stephen King books. Really, really good. Definitely one of his best. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, it was because of uh, all the snow, like the one sort mm-hmm. of. No. Oh, that is something. I did watch The Thing. Oh, and The Thing, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 For Game first thing. time. Yes, that was a, a first time watch for you. Yes. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Um. Okay. I did, okay. I want to get back to you in misery. But, <laughs> okay. um, yes, we got snow for the first time. Honestly, actually, it was the first time in two years Philadelphia had measurable snow. It was kind of weird and existential. But we had a snow day. And I was like, you know what? Going to do it. So I did it because I didn't know when it was going to snow again yeah. <laughs> um, and really enjoyed it. Could feel the cold. <laughs> um, talk to you about a lot of my just different um, thoughts and theories you see out there on the Internet and that sort of thing. Um, but thought it was, you know, it, it's funny because I feel like I've seen the grossest parts already anyway. So, you know, yeah. it kind of didn't hit me. Um with that stuff where it's like, oh yeah, I know about the arms getting chopped off and I know about the head and the blood and the, like, so like the, the grossest parts I kind of already had um, exposure to, but yeah, really enjoyed it. I would like to watch the prequel um, at some point. So I think I'm going to do that. Um, but yeah. 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 So tell I me about misery. Misery. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, you know, part of my snow I was trying to cram a lot of like snow horror mm-hmm. uh, into that like couple days where DC was experiencing the same thing as Philly um mm-hmm. you know a little bit of snow and ice and whatnot that week don't think it's gonna come back this winter no. so it was, it was a thing rewatch it was a shining rewatch um and then I picked up misery and longtime listeners will know um I didn't really start reading Stephen King until college, but like the movies were something I grew up with, including Misery. The book, excellent, phenomenal, one of his best. Um, I and sort of similar, like with the thing, I knew what was different in the book. I know. I was know, gonna ask, how did you feel about the uh, the hobbling scene in the book? Yeah, I like I just knew that that was a thing, so I was like brace for it and anticipating it I definitely agree with sort of like I think what most people say about it it's way more intense in the Mm -hmm. book I think it's worse um but just so so tight like misery's not really that long Mm -hmm. um and just proof that the guy the guy can the guy can do a, a tight, you know, <laughs> contained. They're not always the. Gun to his head, it doesn't have to be nine hundred pages. Yeah, they're. It's not. It's not what it's become. Um. Yeah, and Annie Wilkes, man, like what a, what a once in a lifetime villain, you know. Yeah. Like, gosh. Um. But yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And kind of right when I got to the part where um, it's no longer winter in the book, the snow like melted here. 
So mm-hmm. it was all very sort of like synced up. That was kind of funny. Nice. But yeah, misery. Nice. And uh, I think that's about it. Oh, um, oh, it's over there. Yeah. I started uh, a book you talked about on the show before and that you lent me, uh, mm-hmm. Whale Fall. Yes. Um, I'm not super far into it, but um, definitely enjoying it. I love a short chapter mm-hmm. novel because um, it makes you feel like you're reading a lot more. Yeah, you've accomplished <laughs> something. Yeah. You've read five pages, but it's two chapters, and you're like, great. Yeah, and you're like, hell yeah, I've earned an Oreo. Um, yeah, and I'm really looking forward to, he's in the ocean. Mm-hmm. The event hasn't happened yet, but you know you know it's coming. Something mm-hmm. bad is coming. Obviously, you just know it's coming because I know the premise of the book. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I feel like it's going to get gooey, and it's going to get gross, and... Mm-hmm. It's it was super unique and I mean I I talked about it before but it definitely was like a yeah yeah I'm looking forward to that exciting yeah yeah well um let's um unless there was something else we've forgotten something or so can always come back or what we can cover it next episode. Let's move into the main discussion of uh, Ready or Not. We'll start things off as we always like to do with our opening question, which is when did you first see this film and what were your first impressions? This was a very early lockdown watch for me. Ah, okay. Yeah. It was like one of the first films we watched during the pandemic which is interesting because it's obviously not a pandemic film but like thinking about it in that context is like interesting since it is like it takes place in a ostensibly a single location um at least within their world a single location and it's a sort of um escape the house type type deal um but this was actually only my second time like this is the first time since my first time watching it Mm -hmm. watching it again watching so that was very cool to revisit it and um i just yeah i think it's a blast like i think it really nails the um like the fine line of horror comedy Mm -hmm. like definitely like a very good like if you can handle gore like a great gateway horror type piece yeah because it's not there's nothing too heavy in terms of Mm -hmm. um, i don't know abject terror yeah. Um, the gore is pretty manageable, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the humor too, like helps. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like it's a completely and like they do a great balance of like this premise is nuts, but the characters take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So you know you can kind of hold those two things um, in your head as an audience member. So I've always, you know, greatly enjoyed it, and it seems like the internet in particular. If uh, the often used gif of Samara Weaving smoking a cigarette covered in blood at the end is like an indication of, uh, you know, they're like, it's like you said, it's sort of a, 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 a not a cult favorite, but a, a sort of darling in the making, I think. That was just the word that popped into my head. It's definitely become a, a darling. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I... 
I'm pretty sure I just checked Letterboxd. I'm pretty sure this is the third time I've seen this film, but I think I missed a log in there at one point because this has it as the second time I've seen it. Um, but I can say, thanks to Letterboxd, that the first time I saw this was on August 22nd, 2019, which was opening day. So I guess I was, <laughs> I guess I was really jazzed for you this. You had nothing to do that day. Yeah, I saw it in theaters. Um, and I mean, I, I, I same, like, I, I loved it then. I love it now. I think it's really fun. I think it's a nice, it's a pretty easy watch. Um, yeah. It's it's not particularly long. Um, there's just enough comedy to, you know, balance out some of the the darker stuff. It's just it's it's fun. It's a fun time. Everyone's I think happy. my my big takeaway from watching it this time is like, I, I feel like I should get this on Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's one of those deals. Yeah, I've got it on Blu-ray. Um, on that I. Popped it in last night to get ready for recording today. I haven't, though, watched any of the special features, which I would like to do because, as we'll talk a little bit about later, there is a commentary uh, with Samara Weaving, and I can't imagine <laughs> she has some pretty... Good day, it's is Samara Weaving. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to hear that. So... So yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about how Ready or Not came to be, um, because it is sort of like a curious little film, um, and it's, you know, it's not connected to any pre-existing IP, and, you know, the directors were not particularly well known, so how did we, uh, how did we end up with this film, this film? <clears throat> well, from what I could find... Sometime around 2014, 2015, um, Matt Bentinelli Open and Tyler Gillette um, received the script. Like they were, I guess, on the slate of uh, directors that the um, Fox Searchlight was looking to bring this to life. Um, it's a screenplay written by Guy Buswick and R. Christopher Murphy. The R stands for Ryan, if you're curious. I'm always curious when somebody does that. I was curious, but I didn't look into it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Why? Because then he would be Ryan Murphy if he used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First. Instead yeah. of just going as Christopher Murphy, he really felt the need to. <laughs> He's like, but you know what? Yeah. yeah. Um. And they initially were passed over for it. Um, they did end up uh, sort of fixating it on it, though, because they really enjoyed the script. Um, they described it as, um, quote, it's a movie that's about family and it's about faith and it's about trying to figure out who you are as an outsider entering this crazy realm. Um, so they sort of held on to, uh, you know, their fixation on this movie and they ended up getting a chance to go in and pitch it on November 9th, 2016, which is notable because it was the day after the election. <laughs> so they were very acutely aware of wanting to get ahead of like what they knew was going to be a boom in like rich white people being villains in media. Mm -hmm. um, so they like really pushed that in their pitch. Um, and also during this development stage, once they like got out of the pitch and they said, okay, great, go develop this project for us. Um, you know, Get Out came out right after that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very much aware of the similarities between their film and Get Out and like were consciously trying to distance themselves from it while also paying homage because they didn't want to end up like accidentally plagiarizing things. And then also, you know, they tell two very different stories. Um, but, you know, it's interesting how, you know, they come out a year apart, give or take, and they do have somewhat similar um premises when it comes to like class stuff uh and that sort of thing and you know meeting your in-laws um but um some of the 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 early things they kind of focused on when they put together their pitch and like development then followed after was the the juxtaposition of like the terror and violence against the background of board game imagery and language. And this is something I didn't realize the first time I watched it, hmm. but sort of picked up on the second time is that there's a lot of little nods uh, throughout the movie to board games. Like um, in the very beginning, her husband says, okay, meet us in the music room um, in 10 minutes for, you know, their little the game thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, that's a nod to clue. And, you know, the, the props that they all pick up and the shit that they're using to, to try and kill her, like, different elements of that are from board games. Different settings and locations are from board games. Um, so that, that was very fascinating. But um, That's cute, yeah. I mean, yeah, and just setting it in a giant, like, mansion like that in general. Mm-hmm. Huge clue nod. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so uh, Matt Bentinelli opened in Tyler Gillette um signed on to co-direct um they previously worked together on chad matt and rob in 2011 uh a segment in vhs 2012 entitled 103198 devil's due in 2014 which is like a found footage film and then southbound in 2015 that one's kind of a cult classic i would say at this point amongst people yeah that's a creepy movie yeah um and then this is like this is I just found it interesting. The cinematographer Brett Jewetis Jutewis. I can't really pronounce it. So I apologize <laughs> to him. It appears to be potentially a Polish name. Um uh was admittedly not a horror fan, um, but he enjoyed the script because of the comedic elements, so he signed on. Ooh. Um and he had some actually some interesting stuff to to talk about in a uh, interview that I read with him that we'll get into a little bit when we get to the filming. But talk to us a little bit about the writing. Nice. Yeah, so you had mentioned um, it was written by uh, Guy Busick um, and R. Christopher Murray. Um, Busick, before this, had written exclusively for television um, and... Uh, developed, I guess, a pretty good working relationship with Bettinelli Open and Gillette. Um, would go on to collaborate with them um, for their um, two entries to the Scream franchise. Because as we know, um, partly because of the success of Ready or Not, um, Bettinelli Open and Gillette were um, sort of tapped to take on uh, Five Cream and Scream Six before exiting the franchise amidst all of the recent stuff stuff (laughs) um uh but their their next project um uh is this year's abigail um which music has also um i guess worked with them on so a little little team going on over there 
originally uh, the story for Ready or Not was going to end with Grace um, actually being killed in the ritual and sacrificed before they decided to switch it so to um, her to Grace surviving and then the family getting sacrificed. And it's really, really interesting to me to, to think of the movie as essentially like, you know, Grace, like the good guys losing and yeah. the bad That's guys. That's a much more cynical uh, ending. Yeah, and I think if you, that had been like the vision that got carried through, like it wouldn't or it shouldn't have been a horror comedy, right? Like if you're gonna have if you're gonna have the the evil capitalists come out on top, then you yeah, know, there's nothing really funny about that. <laughs> um, but interesting to think about. Um, other early invert. Other early versions involved the main events taking place in the days leading up to the wedding rather, rather than just the day of the wedding itself. Um, it was Ben and Open and Gillette who decided to shorten the timeline of the film so that it took on a more survive the night approach. Um, and they, you know, were sort of really captivated by the idea of a bride moving around this, you know, these set pieces with a shotgun. Um, which I love too, and I think is mm -hmm. part of the power of this film is that, like the imagery, the imagery. It's just the one costume. It's just the dress, as it very much you know deteriorates and changes throughout the film until we get that mean moment at the end. Uh, yeah, it, it felt to me almost uh, Buffy-ish because there's a sort yeah. of very iconic bit in Buffy where she's in her like homecoming dress with like a crossbow mm. and just sort of doing that. And it's like a white dress. So it feels very like it just, it felt like a very post Buffy uh, imagery yeah. move. Yeah. And then, you know, it's one of the, you know, sort of easiest symbolic, you know, readings as well. It's like, as the white dress gets tarnished, you know, it's the mm -hmm. lost innocence and, you know. Which there's an interesting note about that uh, later on. That, we will, that I will share. Um, so yeah, um, and then sort of something else to note in the, all of this process of you know changing versions and tweaking things to the story. Um, Grace's role as the final girl, sensibly, was meant to be less miraculous um, than other final girls with the directors as well as weaving herself collaborating on the character of grace and um wanting her to rely almost entirely on fight or flight um and um you know we see her stumbling through or rather not stumbling through these moments of danger but like you know sort of like finding a clever way out of them um the kitchen scene where she goes toe to toe with the butler for the first time um, <laughs> is a good example of a um, of this sort of like subversion um, where you know Grace is doing everything she can to get the gun to work and then it doesn't and then she finds the workaround with the teapot you know <laughs> so, yeah. um, so she's, she's got her wits about her. Um, and uh, something that I think um, 
it's just amusing to note. Uh, Samara Weaving, now sort of like considered iconic for for playing this role, not originally considered for the <laughs> race. Um, it was her so-called Hollywood twin, Margot Robbie, that they were <laughs> looking at. Um, I think a lot of folks know that the, there's just sort of like this conversation that happened in Hollywood and then on the internet about the two of them looking alike. Um, last year's film Babylon actually Oh yeah, you told me about this. They, Don't they like play each yeah. other's something yeah. or other? Margot Robbie, of course, the lead in Babylon. Um, you know, she's this aspiring actress who shows up in old Hollywood to try and make it big. She's eventually cast as like a stand-in for this famous actress that she looks like, and the famous actress is Tamara Weaving. Nice. <laughs> and, yeah. Both Australian. Yes both Australian um I think that I mean I think they like they, they I don't know if they're like they're aware that they look like <laughs> yeah like, I, and like they've commented on it and I think they, they they know each other I don't know how well but um just kind of funny to think about but Samara Weaving did get suggested actually by Fox um because of her work on um uh Three Billboards um, outside Ebbing, Missouri, the Oscar contender from, gosh, four years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the rest of the cast, let's see, pretty standard, no major notes on how the rest of the cast. A lot of Canadians. Out. A lot of Canadians in the cast. Um, fun notes, Matt Bentley open cameos um, as the voice of the sports car driver, Guy Busick and our Christopher Murray. They're the um, instructors on the crossbow YouTube video that Fitch watches. <laughs> on the toilet. Yeah, while he tries to figure out like, how to murder his new sister-in-law. So some fun notes there. But otherwise a fairly standard casting process by the look and sounds of things. How did filming itself go once, once everything was all kind of set in place? So filming was quick. Mm. Principal photography lasted just over a month. Very short. Uh, between October and November 2018, um, mainly in Toronto, Ontario. Um, Casa Loma served as the stand-in for the Le Damas family mansion. Um, it's this massive, I don't think we saw it. We never went to go see it when you came to visit me when I was living there, but um, it's this massive Gothic revival castle that just sits. Like, considered it though. Yeah, like people like, I mean, it's open as a, like a museum and then they also do like little events. Like obviously they have a Halloween thing and then like Christmas ball and like happy hours and that sort of thing. But it's this big old like Gothic castle essentially um, that was built in the middle of Toronto in 1903 by financier and soldier when that was still like a you know right. a main profession you could have uh henry pala um for Very what huge. yeah uh for what is today would have been 122 million damn um, yeah um it served as the filming location for quite a few movies including chicago x-men 
uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Crimson Peak, which I kind of want to rewatch, by the way. I only saw it the one time. Oh, really? Yeah. I like, I like Crimson Peak. Yeah, I feel like I want to rewatch it. So I might do that at some point. Stay tuned, everyone. That's a good um, one. All the, yeah. you know, with the red snow and stuff. Mm hmm. Um, Twitches, Twitches 2. Twitches. Uh, <laughs> And Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, there are a bunch of others, but these are kind of the big ones that stuck out to me. Um, Interestingly, because of the historical nature of the building, it really limited their ability to shoot in the interior um, because they weren't allowed to have any open flames, including candles. So they had to do some light trickery to give the idea of candles, because obviously there's a lot of candles in this movie, but you never actually see them. Um, And... Yeah, I, I've got another note about exactly how many, how much access they had to, like, props yeah. that had light to them um, later on. But the other interesting thing is in some of the rooms, they weren't even allowed to, like, touch the furniture, like, throughout the entire room because it was, like, so historic. And yeah, yeah. So that's some interesting stuff. Um, other. Uh, places a lot of the exterior like the where the wedding takes place specifically um is parkwood estates in oshawa ontario uh which also appears in billy madison another film from the 90s um and then so a lot of the out- <laughs> uh the outdoor bits where she's sort of running and in the woods and that sort of stuff was in sunnybrook park and clareville conservation area both are in and around toronto Mm. Um, the only actual bit of set that was constructed for this film was the goat pit. Interesting. Yeah, everything else was a found piece of found piece of set. Yeah. Um, pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, the camera work in the early part of the film was meant to be fluid and sort of like moving like its own character throughout the mansion before transitioning into a more handheld style and higher like more cuts and shorter scenes. Uh, which was meant to illustrate Grace sort of like rupturing like the flow of the family and um, mm. that sort of thing. Um, one of the most difficult shoots was the car crash sequence, um, which was filmed outside at night with a car on what the crew called a rotisserie rig. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> um, that brings with, a certain imagery, yeah. Yeah, with the actors and camera inside the vehicle, obviously they're strapped down, but they're in there while it's, you know, doing its thing. Um, it was middle of the night, 20 degrees, and actually, like, sometime around 4 a.m., it started snowing, and they were like, fuck, like, it can't be snowing. Um, and they eventually got the shot just before sunrise. Um, wow. Interestingly, one of the first things to have been filmed as early as day two, it was either day two or day three, was the final scene where the family explodes. Um, they did this because it was a real challenge with the practical. I mean, obviously they explode in CGI, but the blood splatter is practical. practical. So yeah, for the continuity purposes, they knew it was going to be a huge pain in the ass to reset it. Um, so they got that out of the way very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Um, and I'll have more fun production notes as we go on, but tell me a little bit about the music. It's interesting. Um, well, the score was composed by Brian Tyler, um, who has composed, I believe, seven of the ten Fast and Furious movies. Great resume. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, as well as Rambo, Iron Man 3, The Expendables, um, Avengers Days of Ultron, Crazy Rich Asians, and this past year's Super Mario Brothers movie. Um, among many others. Neither did I. Um, but it made a lot of money, the Super Mario Brothers. I always, whenever I would see a trailer or like a TV spot for it, I'd think of Chris Pratt and how he was adamant that he wasn't going to do a voice for Mario. And then I'm just picturing him going, it's me, Mario. Yeah. I assume that's how it went. One has to assume. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not necessarily rushing to see that one, but I'm sure it's well composed. <laughs> no, no shade to Brian Tyler. None at all. None at all. Um, so yeah. So let's maybe actually should we jump to the fun production facts since we're sort of talking about making up yeah. stuff right now? Yeah, I can do that real quick. Quick for us. So well, quick. as you said, the dress representing and its sort of degrading state, representing a loss of innocence, amongst other things. There was actually 17 different versions mm. of this one costume Samara Weaving wears the entire the entire film yeah. um, that had, you know, everything from subtle, quick, you know, very subtle differences to like obviously covered in shit and blood and ripped differences um but it was all meant to sort of like gradually like if you lined them up it would sort of be like a perfect gradient of of her changing obviously situation but also attitude and inner mm-hmm. world uh throughout the film um this one i found funny because of reasons you will understand in a second samara weaving did not have a license or know how to drive <laughs> <laughs> I know you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she had to be taught during production so that she could at least realistically look like she was driving at the end uh, before the car gets shut off by the OnStar guy. Oh, my God. Um, So I don't know if she actually has her license now or just knows how to drive. Right. Like like someone else listening? (laughs) Um, The creative team submitted over 200 fictional board game titles to the legal department that they could show in the film. Ultimately, only eight cleared copyright. That would be fun, just sitting there coming up with board game names. And then you find out some, like, dude in, like, 1823, like, already came up with it. Like, some incredibly obscure people in, like, you know, Norway or, like, have a hard game with the same name. And they're like, oh, we can't use that. Who begets a slice? Yeah. <laughs> um, Converse actually no longer makes the particular shade of yellow that Grace's shoes were. You only see them very briefly when she rips the like hem off yeah. her dress. Yeah. Um, but they had to be custom ordered and painted. They were, I guess, adamant about that. I honestly couldn't even tell they were yellow, but I guess they are. No offense to the costume person. No, yeah. Well, and I think because like there's like a... Because of, like, how they use the candlelight, there is, like, a yellow gradient. Right, everything looks yellow. Like, a lot of parts of this film. And so, I don't know that, yeah, that I don't think I specifically clocked the shoes either. Just that they, just that they fit, like, pattern-wise. As we mentioned before, the homages to different games, uh, the pepper box revolver Emily has is a reference to Clue, in which it appears as a possible Mm -hmm. murder weapon. Obviously, the 
music room line is a reference to that as well. The one where she's like, Emily like shoots everyone except for <laughs> except for Craig. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, it's like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> we'll get to. I've got a lot of love for Melanie Scarfano. We'll get to that uh, <laughs> a bit. But um, the tunnel that Samara Weaving and Mar- Mark O'Brien walk through in the film's first act. This is like when they're, I think, going, you know, trying. To, didn't, yeah, trying to escape. Yeah. Um, is a public site where multiple people have carved their initials into the stone, and oh. they did too. Oh, okay. That's cute. That's cute. Um, in addition to being an anagram of Belial, one of the names assigned to the devil, the word Lebal is roughly translates to the contract in French. It's fun. And Ledomus is an anagram of Asmodel, a variant of Asmodeus, a Hebrew demon. Mm. You demonologists out there, um, you know who you are. The nail that goes through grace's hand which is probably like the most visceral like scene for me when she's in the pit trying to climb out but um the nail was cgi um and they were worried that it wasn't gonna like land um but samara weaving's acting like completely sold the effect they were like it didn't even matter if it looked real or not yeah and see i i mean maybe now that i know that if i went and looked I could tell that about the nail, but I don't, I didn't like clock that on yeah. watches because it's so <laughs> visceral. Yeah. Um, the MPAA required to be given English translations of the Latin words in the ceremony before giving them a rating, in case you're trying to sneak anything in. Um, the fight, uh, between Grace and Becky was one of the first scenes filmed during the production and Weaving actually hit McDowell with a prop brick by accident and feared she would walk off set. Mm. She did not. That's probably um, hurt pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and then the film's original title was Family Ritual before it was changed to Ready or Not. Family Ritual. Which do you like better? I like Ready or Not. I think it's yeah. I think it fits overall more. I mean, I understand what they're doing with family ritual, but I like leaning into the game aspect. Yeah. And I also like the use of the song. The song's great. Yeah. Run, run, run. Yeah. That's on my Halloween playlist, actually. Yeah, it's creepy. It is creepy. Um, um but yeah, quick quick thing. Another interesting thing, which, you know, I don't think would surprise anyone, but most of the screams that Smart Weaving does is completely ADR. Um, Uh, Just because the choreography of the stuff, like, it's too much to do it bodily and then try and make sure. So they went back and did a lot of her screams that way. And especially I feel like at the end when she's just screaming a lot of like guttural sounds yeah Um, she's not she doesn't really speak in the like last chunk of the movie Mm -hmm. Uh, that makes sense yeah 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 yeah. well let's um let's like briefly talk about like what's the deal with this movie what's the what's going on you know i mean (laughs) for folks who haven't actually seen ready or not and you might be you know sitting there listening like what the hell are they talking about 
the premise of the film is it is the wedding day of our protagonist grace and her fiance alex Alex is the um, son of an incredibly wealthy board gaming family, <laughs> um, uh, the Ladomas, and they're getting married at the family mansion. It's not necessarily, it's not made clear like exactly where it is, but it feels very, you know, New England, New England. upper yeah. crusty. Um, the... The ceremony's on the grounds. We actually don't, like, see um, too much of the wedding itself. Because then we skip to that evening where Grace is ready for wedding night activities. But something else has to happen first. And that is a family ritual. Something that the Ladomas do every time someone new joins the family. And that is gathering around a table in the music room where the newest member of the family draws a card from a very old box that determines a game that the family will play. So Grace is, pun intended, game. She mm-hmm. um, she wants to she wants to make a good impression on her husband's new family. Um, not necessarily just because they're rich, but just because she loves Alex. And, you know, as we find out, she um, didn't grow up with a stable family. You know, she mentions growing up in the foster system. And you know, she, it's just, just kind of who she is as a person. Mm-hmm. She draws a card. And it turns out it's one card you don't want to draw. Do you do you want to reenact the? <laughs> the it's my favorite moment. It's one of my favorite line deliveries ever. She picks it out. She looks at it, and then she turns it around and goes, "Hide and seek." <laughs> Are we really gonna play this? <laughs> uh, and everyone around her is completely freaked out and panicked. Um, she doesn't get why, but she's, once again, she's on board and she's like, okay, who's hiding? And they're like, you, <laughs> she's like, okay. And, um, she gives it a, she gives it a shot, right? She mm-hmm. hides in the dumb waiter. She's doing her part. She's doing her bit. Meanwhile, everyone else in the family is getting weapons. <laughs> armed, up. Getting armed to the teeth. They are gearing up. They start stalking around the mansion. She kind of is like, all right, I'm I'm done sitting in this dumb waiter. She moves around a bit. Um, Alex finds her, and it seems like he's trying to tell her something, but before he can do so, <laughs> um, they witness the unintentional murder of one of the maids. And Grace overhears that this was an accident. Um, in several ways. One, the target, the person who was meant to be attacked is Grace. And two, Mm -hmm. she's meant to be clipped. She's not meant to be killed outright, at least initially. So then Grace is like, what the fuck? And discovers that her brand new in-laws 
preparing to sacrifice her in a satanic ritual to a demonic figure that their ancestor made a deal with, a deal that would provide them with all of the wealth and good fortune they have experienced for generations. But in order to sustain that every so often, this is what, this is the exchange. This is the price of their bargain or so they believe. And thus ensues a night of grace attempting to escape the mansion, the grounds and her in-laws amidst a series of trials and errors um, until ultimately um, she finds herself on the sacrificial altar with very little time to spare. And um, then, and then the truth comes out because what's really fun about this movie, especially obviously as a first time watch is that you don't know if these, if this deal is real mm-hmm. or people are just nuts. And this is like an excuse for them to, you know, you know, most dangerous game style, hunt the poor or whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Or they're just like all crazy delusional um yeah so that's 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 the film and i guess so on that like for your first time watch did you think the supernatural angle was real or did you think like they were just i don't know what i think i was leaning towards it not being real but I didn't really have a, a sense of like, um, you know, if that mattered at the moment, since they were like, you know, fucking hunting her they believe it. and shooting things. But like when you get to the last sequence and it seems like it's not real for a second. That's so brilliant. Too. Yeah, it's like, oh, OK, that makes sense to me. Like, uh, and then when they start exploding, it's also like, OK, well, that also makes sense to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. I do love it's so well played because you're like, oh my God, like nothing's gonna happen to them. They've just been doing this to people for no reason. And then they start exploding. You're like, oh my god, I think that's even better. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so so that's the gist of the film. Let's talk a bit more in depth about every the players, you know, everybody mm-hmm. that's swirling around this film. We'll start, of course, with our lead. Samara Weaving as Grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, fantastic. Fantastic. You're, you know, you're a card-carrying member of the Samara Weaving fan club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what's, 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 like, is this, is this babysitter levels for you? Is it, like... Is, it's interesting is, because, like... I was, and you know, I was looking at um, like interviews with her and stuff, and like it's obviously similar genre to Babysitter with that like horror comedy element, but it's a very different character. Um, and I think it's honestly, it's like, I, you know, I was almost gonna say like a more interesting character, but it's tough because of how Babysitter ends. You know, like that's obviously yeah, gotta rewatch Babysitter. What a good movie, but um. <laughs> You know, like, she's just, like, this is her kind of doing, like, the traditional charismatic final girl, I feel like. And she just sort of, like, fits into that so well of, you know, fitting the mold that's there, but then also, like, 
doing her own sort of like stuff with it. Like she, she does feel like such a, you know, like at the end when she takes the ring off and she's like, I want a divorce. And, <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of great line delivery, um, you know, and a lot of good stuff that way. So um, it's tough. I think this and Babysitter are pretty high up there um, in terms of, and I've seen her in a few things, I will say. I'm not, I'm not blindly saying that, but. Um, no, I know. I well, she's yeah. just she's just so charming and mm-hmm. infuses grace with a lot of charm mm-hmm. um, and affability. Like you, you sort of she's like immediately like the sympathetic. Like you're immediately like if you yeah. go in not knowing, you go like and you see her and you're like, okay, this is my main character. Yeah, and like she's she's funny. Like Grace is funny. Like like without being like she makes some good quips. You know obviously like in the beginning before everything sort of like goes down but like and they're very like good natured and they're not mean like how she teases Alex and Mm -hmm. um, that just make her very sort of like very likable and very like Mm -hmm. yeah this is this is our person and it is funny she's doing the opposite role as the babysitter in terms of who's doing sacrificing and hunting (laughs) yeah (laughs) she flips she's like all right let me see what it's like on this side um and and just sort of like like she's not like the character doesn't seem like overwhelmed or intimidated or um or even really all that interested in like the wealth and the status and like the grandeur mm-hmm. of her in-laws like she just she comes across very down to earth she's just like i love this guy like I'm excited at the idea of like being a part of a family. It's all just it's very sweet. Grace is very yeah. sweet. And like the making fun of like the fact that he's rich, like when he says, Yeah, yeah, just meet us in the music room. And she's like, Oh yeah, that normal room that everyone it's has. A normal room to have in a house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that is just so well conveyed. And then of course, whenever she switches into final girl mode and and puts her own spin on things and just her screaming and just being mm-hmm. like so over the shit, you know, like when the um when she gets through the gate and that guy drives by, yeah. like, um, get out of the road. And she's just she's like, like, you fucking, fucking small dick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Um yeah, killed it, killed it. So then right up next, we have um, Adam Brody as Daniel Ladomas, um, Alex's older brother. Um, and so I, I guess sort of not necessarily a black sheep, but he like mentions being a disappointment mm-hmm. a couple times. Um He's got alcohol issues. He alcohol seems to issues. hate his wife. Yeah, he, you know, he's a character where he's been, sh- like, we get the impression he has struggled with the morality of all of this for quite some time. Um, and then Well, because we see in the cold open, he gives up. Um, the cold open is yeah. the last time they played hide and seek. It was... Um, the, I think she's the great aunt of um, yeah. Alex and Daniel and Emily, who appears in the movie as like a very funny, weird, matriarchal, stalking she's presence. So- um, but 
she and her husband, her husband pulled, um, clearly obviously pulled um, hide and seek. And when Alex and Daniel are boys, they run into him while he's running and hiding and he's wounded. And Daniel gives him up and, and calls the family. Is 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 Daniel, right? Is, yeah, yeah, it is Daniel. Um, he hides Alex in the closet because Alex is younger and scared. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we see... Um, the mom tell him how proud she is of Daniel, yeah. you know, for like being a part of the family, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it is, and it's ultimately Daniel who, um, sort of because of this guilt and shame, and and I think and I think some genuine affection for Grace, like I think he connects with her that mm-hmm. he ends, um deciding to help her and ultimately like betraying his family and paying the price for that. Um, I like this character and I like Adam Brody's portrayal because it is very, um, he has some good one-liners in there too. Mm-hmm. The delivery and some good quips. Um, it was, I love him in it. I think he's great in it. And like watching it, I was thinking if this movie was made like five or six years later, it would have been um, like Jack Quaid in that role. Yes. Yes. It was literally, yeah, truly like a couple years shy of Jack Quaid. Yeah. Like taking that on. That's a good one. Yeah. Cause they have that same sort of like, I don't know. But yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's a, he's a fun character. Um, then next we have Mark O'Brien as Alex uh, Ladomas, middle child, Grace's fiance, um, who, you know, an an interesting, if not necessarily super surprising arc. He starts off very worried and concerned for Grace and attempts to help her escape. And then by um sort of the final sequence he's sort of rerouted found his way back to the family and um makes the ultimate betrayal um captures grace and and is prepared to sacrifice her in order to keep his family in comfort um watching it this time i was i was thinking about the alex character a lot because i was like just like trying to piece out like does he really love, do you really love someone? Could he have really loved her if, to have never have told her? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because Daniel makes the point that he told his wife very early in their relationship what the situation was. And she was like, was yeah, cool? great, I'm in. Yeah. Like, she was good with it. <laughs> um, And, you know, he purposefully, you know, kept it quiet and you know didn't say anything in the hopes that like you know once they did their little ritual like nothing you know it wouldn't happen and that sort of thing um yeah he would roll the dice that she would just pick we don't know how many options are in there like how many cards there possibly are but he he takes a gamble um rather you know and, and in his eyes it's like meant to be as a form of protection so that she wouldn't have to know at all but then it's like yeah, but you robbed her of the agency of, you know, choosing to whether or not to play Russian roulette. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, so just thinking about that a lot with him. Obviously, he ends up being quite a piece of shit at the end. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so that's Alex. Then we have um, a noted character actor, Henry Zerny, as um, patriarch of the Ladromas family, Tony. Um sort of guiding us through the ritual and the hunts and the history. You know, he gives us all the exposition. Um, I think he does a good job. He's played a lot of these kinds of characters before. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think too many notes from me. Yeah, it's and, just the fun sort of like the nice balance between, you know, one minute he's like the very nice, uh, charming father-in-law and then he's, you know, and he's like, okay, here's your <laughs> Say, I gotta go come after you with this knife. Yeah, like, oh, all right. Um, then we have the legend herself, Andy McDowell, as Becky Ladonis, um, Tony's wife, mother to Daniel, Alex, and Emily, matriarch. Um, I love her in this. I love that, I love that Becky, like, genuinely likes Grace. Yeah. Um, instead of being like the bitchy mother-in-law, like yeah. very, very easy sort of like trope that they could have written her as. Um, and I think Andy McDowell does a great job of like conveying how much like this character like genuinely regrets that Grace pulled hide and seek. Mm-hmm. Like she seems like truly distressed when that happens. Yeah. Yeah, because she says even at the end, I mean, this is at the part where they're like ready to kill each other, but she's like, you were supposed to be the new me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like she saw something in Grace, like, you, mm-hmm. you know. Um, then we have, here you go. Then we have Melanie Stefano mm-hmm. as Emily Ladomas Bradley, um, the youngest child sister to Daniel and Alex. And a family cocaine addict. I, Melanie Scrofano is, um, she's great in this. I mean, she, I watched her in a show that was pretty, this, I would say this is a sort of cult following show, uh, Winona Earp mm. on, um, whatever it was on, sci-fi. sci-fi, and then whatever the Canadian version is of that. But, um, where, you know, she gets to be comedic in that, but obviously she's not, like, ripping lines um, sure. in in that show. But she is very funny in this as, like, just sort mm-hmm. of, like, constantly, like, off the walls, um, <clears throat> but very good line to delivery that isn't super over the top. Like, when she shoots, like, her fifth maid or whatever by accident... And she's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then her dad is like, class. He's like, it's okay. Come, you know. She's like, I'm trying, daddy. Like, you know. She's, uh, she's great. And then, you know, there is that moment of, um, you know, seriousness with her where she's talking to Daniel and, you know, talks about how, you know, she is worried that the, the curse is real for the sake of her sons. Um, yeah. You know, and that's kind of the thing that gets him to sort of. Uh, temporarily slip, you know, flip on um, Grace for a while, it seems, is his, you know, recognition of seeing himself and his nephews 
Yeah. Um, and worry that they're going to have to go through the same thing, um, which also, you know, like now that I think about it, I guess maybe it's less that it got him to flip on Grace and more that he wanted to sort of end the like his hope was that it was true and they would all end up dead anyway. Yeah, because I I I like that moment a lot because she says to her one son, I'm so proud of you. Mm-hmm. And that he shot that he shot Grace in the hand. Um and I feel like we get Daniel remembering the moment when his mother told him that mm-hmm. when he reveals, um, you know, he re- revealed his aunt's husband to everybody. And so, yeah, I think that's the moment where he starts down the path of basically like ending this nonsense slash this generational trauma. You yeah. Know? He sees that his nephews are about to become and he's like, no, we're done with this. It's like, I'm not entirely sure if it's real, but either way, we're done. Right. Um, but yeah, I do. I do really like that moment between the two of them, you know, where they're debating if the if the the deal, the curse, the, you know, the situation is real. And he's like, maybe we should all just die. And she's, you know, we we deserve it. And she's like, my kids don't. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and then as. As Emily's husband, Fitch Bradley, we have Christian Brun. He uh, is great. He <laughs> people will know him from uh, Orphan Black, where he plays a not dissimilar character, which is the sort of bumbling husband who's like trying to be, you know, helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, thrust you know thrust into a world of violence, trying to figure out what that's about. Um, you know, he he kind of like has a you know, I'm not, I haven't seen, he's in other things and I'm sure he's not, you know, that's not his one hit wonder, but from what I've seen of him, he does play these characters where it's a sort of a, a dude who's either suburban or affluent or what have you taken out of his comfort zone into a, a, a situation like this. Um, and he's very good and he plays very well off of uh, Melanie Scrifano. Um, yeah. And also like every time he, when he does something and like Tony will be like, shut up, Fitch. Yeah, like, <laughs> <hates> him. yeah. <laughs> um, you yeah. know, and him being he's like, I don't even try to use the crossbow, and he like looks up the video. <laughs> he's um, trying to figure it out. But um yeah. Yeah, he's very funny. Sort of, and definitely the most sort of like obvious comic relief. Mm-hmm. Like he and Emily definitely like he gets a lot of like just ridiculous and so like over the top like rich people shit like he gets yeah. to say a lot of that stuff yeah um, he when he shows up he's like so sorry we're late our normal charter from malibu or whatever yeah, yeah wherever they were coming from they like miss they miss yeah. the actual wedding yeah like, they show up like at midnight for the for the ritual for the ritual mm-hmm. and i think and what's funny about the fitch character too is that you know because he wasn't around the last time this happened, like, I don't think he really believes it's real, you know, right. he um, isn't entirely sure. And then like, so when, when they're like, okay, it's time to hunt her. He's like, really? No. You know? <laughs> like, we're okay. doing this? Yeah. Um, so, and then we have the other, um, in-law to the in-laws, Elise Levesque as Charity Ladomas, Daniel's wife. Um, yeah, she's good. She plays the sort of like, 
um, she, you know, they clearly hate each other, but they're both getting something out of the relationship type deal. Um, and for whatever reason, is ready to rock when it comes to the hide right. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, sort of, yeah, definitely that thing of, like, super rich people who they're clearly unhappy, but they're going to stay together because, you know, that's just what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she's willing to do whatever it takes to keep the life of luxury that's been afforded to her because of her marriage. There's the, an interesting implication that she came from, like, a, a really rough background that may have been similar to Grace's. Like, she's mm-hmm. kind of nearer to Grace. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what could have been. Um, and then we have Nikki Guarini as Aunt Helene Ladomas, um, who very scary figure. A very scary room. It was her brand new husband thirty years ago that was the last victim of the sacrificial rite, um, and I think it took her, you know, off, <laughs> pushed her off the deep end, as it were. Yeah. She's a uh, it's a very over-the-top portrayal. It's very camp, but it works, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she she says to when Melanie Scarfano finally shows up, and she's like, oh, Aunt Helene. And she goes, brown-haired niece. <laughs> yeah. You're still <laughs> something or whatever. Yeah. yeah. You continue to exist. Or something yeah, like that. that's the line. Yeah, and she's sort of like hyper into... The ritual, right? Like, she hella believes, probably because Mm. she lost the only man she ever loved to it. So, like, she can't afford to believe it's not real, because how how would you live like that otherwise? So she's just very... She clearly doesn't like Grace. It's almost like she knows Grace is going to pull hide-and-seek. She, like, she says to Emily, like, it's time for your boys to take their place. Like, he's, like, the, the fanatic in the family. Yeah. And then for the last of sort of the main cast, we have John Ralston as Stevens, the very loyal butler to the Ladomas family, who participates actively in the hunt for Grace. And is yeah, I feel like he's probably not allowed to. I feel like that would be against the rules. He's far more active considering he has like, nothing to gain from those. He has nothing to gain. Yeah, like he's the one who actually captures Grace ultimately. Yeah. Um. Big classic music fan. Big classic music fan, which results in an error for him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a fine performance, I think. Yeah. And then just very quickly, giving credit to the rest of the cast, we have Liam McDonald and Ethan Tavares as Georgie and Gabe Bradley, um, Emily and Fitch's children. Hannah Catalba, Celine Sai, and Danielle Barbosa as Clara, oh. Tina, and Dora, the three maids in the mansion, who are all, well, two of them are shot by Emily, and one is crushed by the dumbwaiter. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, all of their deaths are um, moments of comedic relief, as odd as that is to say. <laughs> well, and it's funny, because the second one is killed, and Fitch is like... <sighs> So we gotta watch out. Hopefully, we don't get the third one. Somebody's gotta clean this shit up. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be. Uh, uh, Andrew Anthony as Charles, um, Aunt Helene's husband in the in the cold open, 
Etienne Kilisi and Chase Churchill as the young Daniel and Alex from that opening. Elena Dunkelman and Kate Ziegler as the young Helene and Becky from the cold open. Nat Faxon as the voice of Justin, the on-star guy. <laughs> Justin. Who is not at all helpful. Um, and as we mentioned, Guy Busick and our Christopher Murray, the screenwriters as the crossbow instructors in the YouTube video that Fitch watches. And then uncredited cameo, um, producer and um, uh, Hollywood writer, his name's attached to a number of projects, James Vanderbilt, plays LaBelle. Um, Do you think he thought it was a little close to home considering his... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> his surname yeah that yeah. Yeah, is interesting um, but he does briefly play the figure that Grace sees briefly um, after the family has been popped as a yeah. um, you know and I love her reaction to that She's, she just sort of does like a huh <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I caught it this time. I don't know. He winks at her. Mm-hmm. He like gives her like a nod and a like a like a, like a well done almost yeah. you know game recognized game kind of thing. Yeah. Um, which obviously at that we know at that point because the family has exploded. But just sort of like yeah, he was real. The deal was real, and and the family lost. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about um, when the film was released and how it was received. Sure. Um, so it was released August 21st, 2019, as we know. Craig went to go see it opening day. <laughs> <laughs> um, after the world premiere at Fantasia International Film Festival um, on July 27th. Um, on its opening weekend, it grossed $8 million, uh, placing sixth at the box office behind Angel Has Fallen, Good Boys, Overcomer, Fast and the Furious Presents, Hobbs and Shaw, and The Lion King. Um, is that that Angel Has Fallen and Overcomer were new or they're new? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. everything else, yeah. So Angel Has Fallen and New Com- o- Overcomer were um, also released that weekend. The others had been in theaters. Yeah. Um, it ultimately grossed $57.6 million against a $6 million budget, which is roughly $51.6 million in profit. Um, so very, very good returns on that. Nothing to stop um, yeah. uh, positive reviews called the film Smart Subversive, uh, full of apt, dark humor, and praised the fresh, entertaining manner in which the filmmakers subverted a time-worn story, a time-worn story to successfully balance socioeconomic commentary and straightforward horror. But negative reviews, uh, though they were few and far between, uh, mainly critiqued uh, the weak dialogue, which I think the dialogue is great, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was kind of like, what weak dialogue? I don't yeah. know. It worked for me. Yeah. I, there's some funny stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, but it holds a Rotten Tomato score of 89%, a Metacritic score of 64, an IMDb rating of 6.9, and a Letterboxd rating of 3.5. Which is my personal Letterboxd rating, so I'm fine with me. Um, 
in terms of analysis, a lot of this movie is very much on the nose with what it's going for, but I thought it might be interesting to briefly talk about the the board game families that inspired <laughs> the Le Damas, which is mainly the Bradley and Parker families, um, who were instrumental in what we now call the golden age of board games, kind of between 1880 and 1920. Mm. Obviously, board games go back to like antiquity all over the world, from Mesoamerica to like Han China. Everyone was playing board games since forever. Um, But the first American board game is believed to be a game called Traveler's Tour Through the United States, uh, which was released in 1822 by a New York City-based bookseller, F&R Lockwood. Um, Other early board games included Mansion of Happiness, the game of Pope and Pagan, um, (laughs) and the jolly game of Goose. Um, (laughs) Okay, well, Don't we know. simply must play um, the game of Golden Pagan. <laughs> yeah. um, Milton Bradley uh, was oh, born in the, yeah, we know, we, we've heard of this guy, uh, <laughs> was born in the early 19th century in Vienna, Maine, and established a lithography company, the Milton Bradley Company, in Springfield, Massachusetts. But the Civil War forced him to pivot to board games, as we all must during the Civil War. <laughs> it's just a funny pivot. It's a funny pivot. Um, <laughs> but he uh, created this game called the Checkered Game of Life, which was a remake of Mansion of Happiness, which were both precursors to what we know today as the Game of Life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. This was in 1860. Uh, it was an instant success, uh, led to the mass production of multiple board games, many of which we know today. Um, a little bit after Milton Bradley, but somewhat around the same time, uh, was Parker Bros, uh, founded by George Parker Swinton in Salem, Massachusetts in 1883, uh, where he was quickly joined by his brother Charles and Edward Parker, hence Parker Bros. Um, their gaming empire focused on games that did not emphasize morality um, and values like earlier games had, uh, the most famous of which was Monopoly. A Great Depression era game. Mm-hmm. Um, some other popular ones included Risk, Sorry, and Clue. Mm-hmm. Um, both of these companies ended up getting bought by Hasbro um, and then just sort of absorbed into them. So neither of them really exist anymore. Um, yeah. So, but these are two New England based uh, board game families. Like, you know, they got their, despite the early go at lithography. Um, both families got their sort of made their mark on, on the American economy through board games, um, which, you know, is interesting. Um, and they're not, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I was trying to see if they had any sort of, uh, fun mansions or weird fucking hunting grounds or something. (laughs) You would think. I'm sure they do somewhere, um, but you know, it's it's it it is interesting that it was a sort of it's a like such a New England affluent like of course they're that's where they got their start and yeah. um the only other thing I I thought was interesting to briefly touch on was um though it wasn't directly referenced obviously like this movie's like taking from the tradition of like several elite and affluent groups utilizing like odd rituals. <laughs> um, 
you know, the most famous, I think, would probably be the Yale group Skull and Bones <laughs> Society, uh, which requires initiates to, like, kneel before other club members in hooded robes. And then they get verbally berated before they have to kiss a real human skull and recite a death mantra. Um, there's obviously urban legends to, like, blood sacrifices and that sort of thing that like these groups make like them and the freemasons and that sort of thing um so it's always a fun sort of fertile ground when you see you know like a sort of like like eyes wide shut and you know like just weird shit that rich people get up to yeah it's definitely i feel like it's definitely playing with that thing it's like okay we know there's like secret societies or you know this and that and like the urban legend is that there are some weird shit where it's like, but do they really do that kind of stuff? I think like the, the fun thing about movies like this, and it's like, you know, what if that's true? What if there are sacrifices? Yeah. Like by me, the um, DuPont family was kind mm-hmm. of the big, the big affluent family near me. And mm-hmm. there's always rumors of like, I mean, obviously it didn't help that that one DuPont guy, like, you know. Yeah. Killed him. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but beyond that, um, there's like always rumors of like just weird shit by their old properties and that sort of yeah. thing. So, Makes sense. yeah. Well, speaking of weird, spooky shit, that's a good segue into one good scare where we can talk about what we each think is the most frightening moment of the film. Um, and I think for me, for a film like this, you know. It's not necessarily a a frightening film per se, mm-hmm. um, but in terms of like a, a, a reaction, um, we we touched on it before. For me, it's it's the nail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the scene where I also feel the most for Grace because it's like her most. I mean, the gate thing also is that's- pretty pretty tough, but like it's kind of her most physically vulnerable and physically like wounded yeah uh version of her and it's just you know like sort of like the moment where it's like oh yeah like this is like a legit violent painful thing that's happening as opposed to yeah and she yeah she's so just like physically like low and depleted like so Mm -hmm. it's like where is she gonna go where is she gonna hide how the hell is she gonna get out of things at that moment Yeah. yeah Yeah, and then I think, like, it, it's an emotional gut punch, too, when Alex turns on her mm-hmm. and, like, calls out, you know, to the rest of his family that she's in the the billiard room or whatever. And, like, you know, like, the the physical, like, lows where she was at, you know, in the goat pit, like, that's, like, yeah. the emotional low at that moment. Yeah. That's, like, a tough moment to watch. Yeah. Now, how about our next segment, which is the view from the closet? Are there any ways where we might think about this film from an LGBTQ plus perspective? I don't think there's really too much there, especially because it is so um, into like traditional heterosexual waspy yeah. shit like that. Where that's an important part of like yeah of this story mm-hmm. yeah I don't I don't know that I've got anything yeah 
So. And that's okay. Not everything yeah. necessarily has yeah. to. We just like to take a moment to think about it if we can. Yeah. Um, so we'll go now to legacy, legacy. What is a legacy before we wrap things up? Um, the film was nominated for a couple, um, you know, uh, I don't want to say lesser awards, but some localized or, um, less known awards out there. One of the big ones though, um, uh, was that it was up for best horror film at the Saturn awards, um, for 2019 and 2020, but it lost to the invisible man. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing to be ashamed of there. I think, uh, the Blu-ray and DVD was released on December 3rd of 2019, just a couple months after release. Um, and like I mentioned, there are some special features on there, including a making of documentary, um, audio commentary with Samara Weaving, Matt Bettinelli Open, Tyler Gillette, and executive producer Chad Valella, a photo gallery, and a gag reel, which is probably uh, pretty fun. Probably fun. Yeah. Um, I, that sort of has like faded out of fashion for physical release. I know. Remember when you used to get those during the credits? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I was like really happy to see that they included that on the, the physical release for, for this movie. I think they should be on every. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, this movie definitely like continued to sort of propel and elevate Samara Weaving um, as a notable actress in Hollywood, particularly as a scream queen. She had the babysitter under her belt. She had this. Um, obviously, she's in the opening of Scream 6. She's done a lot of other work as well. It's always enjoyable to see her as she continues to get more and more work. And, of course, Ms. Mel mentioned also the meme of her covered in blood, smoking a cigarette at the end, definitely became a cultural phenomenon and remains sort of like a perpetual internet link to the film as well. Mm-hmm. So, I think we're ready to close things out, unless there's something we've missed. Well, I have to do my closing question. Right, yeah. That's yeah. the only thing left, right? Yeah. Okay, well then, hit us. Um, Barring hide-and-seek and the, you know, sacrificial bloodbath, um, <laughs> if you were, you know, asked to... to do this ceremony with your in-laws, what game would you want to play? Ooh. And now are we thinking sort of like traditional games that would have been like an option whenever the the deal was made with Great Grandfather? Well, I'd say it could be anything. <laughs> my, my first, I'll go with my gut reaction. My first reaction was chess. Um, I'm not a, I'm not like a master at it by any means, but I'm decent at chess. Mm -hmm. Um, and that would be, I just feel like that would be kind of fun. You could do like a tournament with mm -hmm. everybody in the family and just sort of like play down and see who wins. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know, maybe, but I guess maybe something everybody could play together. I don't know what that would be. Uh, well, with that family, it would be funny to play like Monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, like, really get it. <laughs> really. Like, like on oh, the boardwalk for six thousand is so cheap. <laughs> yeah. Just like just be like okay and have more champagne. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what about you? What would you hope would pop out of the box for you? I am not very good at board games, like across the... What is up, chatterers? We had a little bit of a technical difficulty. Um, for those of you dying to know, the answer to my question at the end of the episode was Yahtzee. Um, I was raised on it, pretty good at it, um, and I think I could kick their asses. But uh, just to get the housekeeping out of the way, as many of you probably already know, but just for the sake of those who don't, you can find us on Twitter at splatterchatter666, minus all the vowels. You can search us in the search bar, though. We'll pop right up. You can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can send an ask on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can leave a comment on our website, on our blog, at splatterchatterpodcast.com. And you can find us both on Letterboxd under our names. Um, and that also includes on Mr. Kreger's um, Letterboxd profile, a full list of every movie um we have covered here on the channel so thanks again for listening and uh we'll see you next month and until then we invite you to keep up the creep adios au revoir and das vidanya